Our Father, we're thankful for these children that we just heard sing, and we think about those that you've entrusted to shape their lives, to bring them to a saving knowledge of your Son, and then to teach them and and the discipline and admonition of Christ. And we want to do that well as parents or whatever season of life we are in as we work with children. So we pray in these five weeks that we have together as we build off the foundation that we've studied in this past summer that you would bless our time together and that you would minister to each and every heart and everyone that will listen to this in the days ahead. Help me, Father, uh, as I construct this course. And uh, I pray that Jesus, my Savior above all, would be honored and praised. And I ask it in his holy name. Amen. All right, this is Biblical Parenting 102, and if you'll turn to the opening page here, we will just kind of step through it. There are some blanks to fill in because, again, this is for the Institute of Biblical Studies. I try to make the uh, answers as short as possible so that it's not too difficult, but um, to give credibility to the course, uh, we, we do have some assignments and blanks to fill in, but it won't be too burdensome, I don't think. All right, let's start. In Biblical Parenting 102, we are building off the foundational truths taught in the first half of the course entitled Biblical Parenting 101. By the way, that is entirely online at searchthescriptures.org. If you haven't heard it, you can get the phone app. Um, and you might want to listen to it. There are nine one-hour sessions to that. And the focus of 101 is really becoming the kind of parent, the person, the Christian you need to be in order to effectively parent. You see, most people, when they go to parenting course, they just want the mechanics. Tell me, you know, is it biblical to spank or not? Or how do I teach my child the Bible? And those are all important issues, and many of which we will cover in this course but they really mean very little if we are not the kind of person that God wants us to be. So we're building off Biblical Parenting 101. Again, it is our hope and desire to ask and answer the question, what does Biblical Parenting look like? Because remember, whatever kind of parenting model that you have adopted, you've got it somewhere. You either learned it in the home that you're in, and if your home was godly and Christ-centered and based on Scripture, then you got a good model. But if your home was not like that, then you might be flying by the seat of your pants. And we are living in a day where the biblical model has basically been jettisoned by the modern culture. And so the whole principle um, foundation on which our, the early years of this country was built has been virtually totally lost. So when we think about a course on parenting, the tendency of many Christians is to see the relevancy of a course on this subject as simply being for new parents or for parents who still have children at home. But in reality, if we understand this topic correctly from God's Word, we learn that this study is for both parents and grandparents, for those married or single, for those families with multiple children, and for those families that are childless. By the way, a family begins not when you have children. <coughs> that is a secular concept. A family begins on the day a man and a woman commits himself at the marriage altar, and they covenant together to live in holy matrimony. That's when the family begins. Now, a family grows 
if God blesses you with children, but biblically speaking, a family begins when that covenant is made. One of the greatest privileges for any adult is to be concerned for the spiritual welfare of children. The Lord Jesus, in giving his great commission to every believer, said this, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. The words every creature in Jesus' command includes children. And so every thoughtful believer must ask, what am I doing to allow God to use me to reach children for Christ? An indication that you are maturing in Christ is that you have a growing concern for the spiritual care and nurture of children. That's, by the way, a really critical mark if you're asking, am I moving forward in my relationship with Christ, or do I have just kind of a pseudo-spirituality? One beautiful reflection that comes out in the New Testament is how you view children. This is evident from what the Lord told his disciples on that occasion prior to Pentecost, and I emphasize that because this was before the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. Today, at the moment of conversion, you're regenerated by the Spirit. That was not true at this point. The Spirit had not yet been given because Christ had not yet been glorified. So he told his disciples on that occasion prior to Pentecost when they showed their aggravation and disdain over parents bringing their children to Jesus. We read, and they were bringing children to him so that he might touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw this, he was indignant and said to them, permit the children to come to me, do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. So the parents were bringing children to Jesus so that as Matthew's gospel notes, Matthew adds in the parallel account that he might lay his hands on them and pray. Jesus' teaching is a beautiful witness or testimony on the importance of the family. Because as Jesus on this occasion was teaching on God's ideal for marriage, same day, same hour, same um, audience, he also used this time to speak of the importance of children as parents attempted to bring their children to Jesus. The parents felt free to bring their children to Jesus For him to lay his hands on them and pray speaks volumes about our Savior, namely that children love Jesus and that Jesus loved children. I mean, think about that. You see in the Gospels, this is an occasion where they're bringing their babies, but there's two other accounts where there's an encounter with children, and the children feel very free to approach the Lord Jesus. And I note here, Jesus was not a mean unapproachable, sour kind of person, because children do not love mean and grumpy people. When we look for children's workers, we don't want mean, grumpy people. And occasionally we discover that one has volunteered that's just not, I think, purposely mean, but the spirit they're communicating is really not of gentleness and grace and love, but frustration. And what I think sometimes even those who minister to children forget 
is the kind of homes many of these children who are coming to us are coming from. We have a lot of kids who are coming here on Sunday night to Awana, some children tonight in the children's choirs who are not being raised in Christian homes. And you need to remember that we all do when we meet these children. I recently, at one of our new members' um, lunch, which I have most every Sunday when I'm not doing to meet the pastor, I meet with new members and we have a lunch together. And we usually go around the table and people share, you know, how they came to the church or if they want to share how they came to Christ. And this one particular mom said, well, I, I came to Christ because we saw you had this extravaganza. And um, we thought, well, that would be fun for the kids. And when we came on the campus, she said people were so friendly to us. And they just cared for my kids. She said, I'd never been to a church like that before. And so I came back, and she came to meet the pastor. She heard the gospel. I baptized her. She's here every week. Then she brought her aunt, and her aunt was there at the table, who's also come to Christ. I said, well, tell me about your background. She said, when I was eight years old, someone gave me a Bible. And if my father saw me reading that Bible, he would beat me. And so I had to hide the Bible if I ever wanted to read it. Now, what kind of a ministry could a dad like that have in a child's life? Very little. Now, that's an extreme. That's the other end of the spectrum. But Jesus was a warm, loving, kind, open person. And children weren't a hassle to him. They weren't a bother to him. And if we see children as a bother, and that's something for the next generation, man, we've got a long way to grow in our relationship with the Lord. Turn the page. If we are growing in Christ and becoming like him, then we'll, we will be the kind of person that children like, for children are often astute judges of character. These parents wanted Jesus' blessing on their children, which is evident in their desire for him to lay his hands on them. And so I gave you a couple of texts, there's many we could have noted here, where the laying on of hands is not... Um, you know, transmitting anything magical when we lay ha hands on someone to ordain them as a pastor or we lay hands on someone to be a deacon. We are recognizing that God has set them apart or sometimes we lay hands as we did last Sunday over in Bluffton on a brother who asked for earnest prayers. He was seeking, you know, surgery for his cancer this week. Well, they were bringing their children to him so he could touch them, so he could lay hands and just pray over them and bless them. But these parents also brought their children to Jesus that he might pray for them, to bless them, to pray for them. Anyone who wants to care for the spiritual welfare of their own children or for other people's children with the desire to lead them to salvation in Christ must be approachable, asking for God's blessing on them, on those children, as we pray for them. And that's a powerful ministry in and of itself. My wife had an encounter recently with a, a, a lady in a store, and 
and for whatever reason, she was really burdened for these children. And she took down their names, and she's been praying for these kids. And sometimes it just takes one person who intercedes at the throne of grace for a child. There may be a room of 40 children in a, in a VBS class, but there's one or two that God just burdens you with that you pray for them and you seek to be a blessing to them and to bless them. Number eight, being the type of person that children like such that they want to be with you. And then praying for these children is foundational to the entire journey. And so honestly, I've told dads in my office and sometimes mothers, but it's more often dads, I wouldn't want to grow up in your home, pal. You're not the kind of dad I would like to have. I'm just being honest with them. I can sit there and stroke them and, you know, make them think that everything's fine. But then they wonder why there's such a hostility in the hearts of their children towards them, and it, many times, it just comes down to them. They're not like the Lord. They're, they're not the kind of warm person that a, a child could come and want to sit in your lap and pray with you and bless them. And that's critical, and that's why in the first nine sessions, we spent a lot of time on becoming the kind of person that we need to be. You can never under, undervalue your approachability or your prayers in the salvation of children. As Spurgeon, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, some of you don't know his name, but he was a great 19th century pastor. Um, he recalls about one of his mother's prayers that was etched on his mind. He spoke about this at the end of his life. He said, I remember on one occasion her praying thus, now, Lord, if my children go on in their sins, it will not be from ignorance that they perish. And my soul must bear a swift witness against them at the day of judgment if they lay not hold of Christ. That thought of a mother's bearing swift judgment against me pierced my conscience and stirred my heart. Prayer is a powerful tool. And again, in the focus in these first two sessions together will be on introducing our children to Christ. And sometimes that's looked at I think, in a careless way. And we have in our mind that our child has crossed that line and come into conversion when they haven't. And if they haven't, then it's very difficult to raise them for Christ. There's a nurturing process that leads up to that. But it is far easier to raise a regenerated child that not only wants to obey you because they respect authority over them, but they want to obey you because they love the Lord and they want to obey his commandment to honor your father and your mother. But prayer, and sometimes even fasting, is an integral part of introducing our children to Christ. Sadly, like many Christians today who see children in church, they see them as a bother to be avoided rather than the next generation of leaders to be saved. You ask them to serve as a VIP six times a year, not me, man. My kids are grown. I've done my time. <laughs> That's just like the opposite of Jesus. And sometimes they don't see that. 
as parents and as Christians who love Jesus, because children love to come to Jesus, we should never block the way or fail to provide them a way. It is especially important to bring children to Jesus when we consider that any local church is just one generation from distinction and that a child has his whole life in front of him with which to serve God. Not long ago, I was in a gas station getting some diesel fuel for my tractor, and, and there was an elderly woman, and I could see what she was trying to do. I said, why don't you let me help you? And um, she had her big five-gallon diesel can, and so while I'm filling her gas can, I ask her the diagnostic questions. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I'm 100%, no, I'm definitely a, uh, a believer, and, and she was. I said, well, tell me, where do you go to church? And I told her I was a pastor. And she said, oh, please pray for us. I said, what's up? She said, there's seven of us left at our church. And we're all old like me. And no young people want to come. I tell you, something happened in the life of that church to bring them to that. Every church is one generation away from death. Some of those old people, maybe, as the American lifestyle and culture fosters, got so high and mighty, they just wanted to serve themselves and didn't want to be bothered with kids. And that church is at death's door today. Thousands of churches right now across America, 50,000 will close in the next five years. People aren't coming, and they're not reaching the next generation. So it's a wonderful thing when, you know, I meet people, and I think God preserves some people. You know, he, he brings them from a part of the country sometimes to Beaufort County because they're coming from a region of the country where the gospel is not being presented, and they hear about Jesus. And it's great. You, you reach them in their 50s and 60s and 70s. When we went into the former Soviet Union in the late 1990s, we met people who'd never heard anything about Jesus. And I'm telling you, old people in their 60s, 70s, and 80s in the droves, hundreds. I remember in one service, we had over 100, 100 people come to Christ. And that's wonderful. And it's great for the 10 or 15 years they had left not to mention their eternal destiny. But when you reach a child, it just sets a course in their life that can be so different, and they can invest their life for 60 or 70 years should Christ tarry. It is especially important, number 12, is that what we're on? Yeah, it is especially important to bring children to Jesus when we consider that any local church is one generation away from death and that a child has his whole life in front of him with which to serve God. Sadly, many people spend the majority of their time without knowing Christ, and so they have little time to invest in the kingdom and to serve Christ. However, when you introduce a child to Christ, he can invest his entire life for Christ, and he can avoid much of the heartache and sin that so many experience as the child learns to walk with God at a young age. We are told on this occasion, the occasion at hand that we're looking at when the parents brought their children to Jesus and 
The disciples were bothered. We're told on this occasion, when many parents approached Jesus with their children, that the disciples rebuked them, for which we are told Jesus was indignant. And so Christ responded with these words. He said, permit the children to come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. Now, I note here, I think it's interesting that Jesus can say that the kingdom of God belongs to little children because it helps us to understand the nature of faith and humility. And think your way through this. Children also are examples of humility because little children do not try to make themselves worthy of their parents' blessings or pretend that they do not need their parents' blessings. But in humility and dependence, they expect their blessing. Isn't that true, little children? They don't say, well, you know, they're two, three years old. Maybe they're just an infant and they're 18 months old. They're not trying to convince you that they are worthy of your blessing. They just, in humility, receive it. They, they throw their full weight on you to take care of them. So in that sense, it's a beautiful comparison. Interestingly, we learn from Luke's gospel. In fact, why don't you turn to Luke 18 for just a moment. Luke chapter 18. The um, chapter opens if you remember with some parables on prayer, he was telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not to lose heart. And then he gave that parable of the persistent widow who um, basically keeps, quote unquote, bothering the judge. Yet because this widow, verse five, bothers me, I will give her legal protection. And then Jesus said in verse 6, hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now will not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night? And of course he will. He's not bothered when we come to him. But we approach with the proper kind of attitude. So then we read in verse 9, and he told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. That's a good definition of an unbeliever. In some way, shape, or form, they trust in themselves that they can earn or merit salvation. You ask them why God should let them into heaven, and they start listing their works, right? And they view others, viewed others with contempt, and that tends to be what happens, especially in the religious realm. And this guy was a religious dude. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the word Pharisee means a separated one. And in the day of Christ, there were some 6,000 Pharisees. Most lived in and around the city of Jerusalem. And the other was a tax collector. The old English would render it a publican. Now, tax collectors aren't quite like the IRS today. They're ripoff artists. Well, you say they're still that way. I don't know. But, um, but they ripped people off, and they had the power of Rome behind them. So when they would go and collect in a given town, uh, like Capernaum, some of you were there with me uh, just 10 days ago. We were in Capernaum, and it was a port city, but it was also a place where 
there was Roman soldiers. Why? Because it was a place where they collected tax. And so you had the authority of Rome behind you. And sometimes you would set prices for your own personal profit. So if you really owed $5 in tax, he charges you 8 if he thinks he can bleed it from you. And he stole. They were just con men. So the Pharisee stood and was praying thus to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went home to his house, the tax collector, the ripoff artist who owned his sin. He went home to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. And then, again, sandwiched between that is this paragraph on children, but look at verse 18. A ruler questioned him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. You're calling me good teacher, but you don't really recognize who I am. Because in the truest sense, only God is good, and I am God. And if you're calling me a good teacher, you need to think your way through it. So Jesus helps him. You know the commandments. Do not, murder, do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he says, all these things I've kept from my youth. Though he had not fully, completely. Because as Jesus unfolds in the Sermon on the Mount, he takes it past the letter of the law to the spirit of the law. So Jesus wanting him to see that he has a problem, that he's sinful, that he's unrighteous. When Jesus heard this, verse 22, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all you possess and distribute it to the poor and you shall have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when he had heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. In other words, his, his God was money. He thought he was fine. I don't commit adultery. I don't steal. Da, 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 da. But his idol in his life was the things he possessed. So Jesus goes for the jugular, this guy who is extremely rich, the text says. And Jesus said, how hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God, for it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And Luke, of course, being a physician, elucidates what's meant by the eye of a needle. As a doctor, he uses a medical term that describes literally a sewing needle that a physician would use to stitch someone up. There's a lot of nonsense about these gates and all that. It's just crazy. Jesus is basically saying when a man is in love with money, it's very difficult when that has a grip on him to get into the kingdom of God. Now, so he's dealing with two different kinds of people who don't really see that there's a problem. And sandwiched between that, it's beautiful how this fits in Luke's account. And they were bringing even their babies to him. And the word here is brephos, which is usually used of, of a child that is you know, two or three years of age or younger. They were bringing even their babies to him so that he would touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they began rebuking them. 
But Jesus called for them, saying, Permit the children to come to me, and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God, like a child, shall not enter it at all. By the way, this is parenthetical, but one of the questions we explore in the discovery class concerns the death of children. And of course, Jesus never uses an illustration that is wrought with error. He only uses truth to teach truth. And so for Jesus to liken the kingdom of God to children, add to that the argument from 2 Samuel 12, from the book of Jonah, uh, and some, a few other passages that we cover in there, the scripture is clear that little children who don't or aren't able to understand go home to be with the Lord. Now, the Bible does not speak of an age of accountability. Sometimes people have chosen 12 because they see Jesus in the temple intersecting with the religious leaders over the scriptures. And they assume it's 12. And, and then some will argue statistically that more children receive Christ at 12 than at any other age. I think that's folly. I don't think that's true. I think that is based more on uh, Protestant denominations that, like Methodists and Episcopalians and Presbyterians, that very often have a confirmation process, and they often do it at the age of 12, where they call a child to a point of decision. God doesn't give us an age. If God said the age of accountability is 12, some of us wouldn't get busy till we're 11. But you know, I, I was brokenhearted about four or five years ago in my office. I met a little boy who was 11 years old. And he was just so hardened to the things of God. Take all the air out of the balloon. Those parents weren't really guarding that little guy. He was getting into pornography on the internet. And it was just hardening his heart. Do I think he was accountable? I really do. And I earnestly wanted him to come to Christ, but he just didn't have an interest. He was on very dangerous ground, as were the parents. So I think it's, uh, what number are we on here? Hmm? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I know the numbering's off here, so I won't use the numbers anymore. Interestingly, we learn from Luke's gospel that this statement of comparing God's kingdom to children is sandwiched between his parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector and his encounter with the rich young ruler. The Pharisee showed the opposite of humility, trusting in his own goodness to find admittance into the kingdom, as did the rich young ruler. Both are unlike the babies that the parents brought to him. For a child knows he has nothing to offer or give, but is totally dependent on his parents, showing us by example that we need to receive God's salvation in the same way. Children are examples of how we must enter the kingdom with a childlike faith, not with a childish faith, but childlike faith. For we must come to God with a faith that trusts him in the same way a child trusts his daddy and leaves his problems with him. The emphasis is not that babies are sinless and innocent 
for they are not. They inherit that sin nature, and you see it in a little three-year-old, right? Put two three-year-olds in a room, give them one toy, and they fight over it. Uh, you don't have to teach them to be selfish. You've got to teach them to share. You don't have to teach a five-year-old to lie. They figure it out. You've got to teach them to tell the truth. They are not innocent. They have a sin nature, just like us, because we all sinned in with Adam. Um, and so if we are growing, we should try to do everything we can to introduce children to Jesus. For these little people are not only compared to being members of the kingdom of God, but they are praised as model citizens of the same. Jesus said there's something intrinsic in the heart of a little child before he's so, you know, um, renewed in his thoughts and programmed in his thoughts by the world that's really precious. It makes them like a model citizen. And that's ideally when you would like to reach that little boy or that little girl with the gospel. And we need to be sensitive to that. Um, my daughter sent me a video of one of my grandchildren, and he's actually with us this week. And um, he was in this uh, class, and she happened to be filming it. And he's just four years old, and he asked the teacher, why do some people get viruses that make them very, very sick? Why does God make viruses? And the teacher, I have on tape, just kind of brushed my off. I don't know. Let's move on. Now, that was a perceptive little question of a little boy. Kids ask some of the most profound questions. In fact, he's asked five or six this week. I wrote down a few of them. Uh, man, you know, the fact that his parents are teaching him the Bible, that they're praying for him, that they're cultivating his heart for the things of God, I think precipitates a lot of these questions that he's asking. But kids can absorb so much truth if we're sensitive and we're praying for them, and we're looking for those opportunities that God would give us. So Biblical Parenting 102 is relevant not only for adults, but especially, I would say, for youth, so that they might understand how they can prepare to someday become effective parents. Again, the best thing is what you model in the home, but if we're not modeling accurately, then we've got a negative model, but beyond that, you want your children to be convinced that this is what Scripture teaches. And part of the parenting process that we're going to bring out in the weeks that will follow is would say, well, let me share with you what God says here in His Word, and here's the biblical principle. And God's Word has great power, and it's alive, and it's sharper than a two-edged sword. So you're doing two things. You're giving them the justification for why you're acting the way you are and deciding the way you're deciding as a parent. But beyond that you are taking it to another level where you're actually equipping them and training them where someday they will be parents. To benefit from this course, it really does not matter how old you are or what season of life you're in. All right? Turn the page. It does not even matter whether you have children or grandchildren or if you are childless because as believers in Christ, God has called all of us to learn and to some degree to be able to teach all he taught, even on parenting. Is that not the Great Commission? And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Then notice, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. So that would be everything that Jesus taught and then everything that he taught as he promised to write the scriptures and to bring to their mind everything he wanted them to record, all that's in the rest of the New Testament. Not to mention he affirmed that the whole Old Testament, or Tanakh as Jews call it, um, is inspired and is profitable, as Paul said. Teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. So this is not certainly a missionary verse, as some people make it. Go, therefore, you know, to Africa or Asia and make disciples. It's actually a present participle, as you go. You could render it more literally. As you go, therefore, make disciples. Or you could say make converts. It doesn't say do discipleship, but it says make converts, make believers. And by the way, that's a critical dimension to your parenting. Evangelism. Not just for your children, but for other people you meet. For two reasons. One, it prioritizes in the hearts and minds of your children what's really important to you. If you show no desire to see your neighbor, your friend, your relatives who don't know the Lord come to know the Lord, you've communicated volumes to your children as to what's important. So one, it's very important in helping your children to learn the value of the eternal over the temporal. And so when they see you engaging people, whether you're inviting them to the extravaganza like that young single mom was invited, said, how'd you come? She said, well, someone gave me a card. Now, whoever did that, you know, she's in the kingdom, her aunt is in the kingdom, and, and, uh, and they were involved in the sewing process, critical dimension. But it's also critically important, not just in the values that you are communicating over soul, but in the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. See, God the Holy Spirit is hindered in the lives of so many believers today for the simple reason the average Christian today no longer shares his faith. And if Jesus said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men, and we're not fishing for men, it simply means we're not following Christ. And it's very interesting to see the relationship in the New Testament between being filled with the Spirit and being obedient and available to do the work of an evangelist. It has nothing to do with your gifting, but it has everything to do with a common call that God has put on all of us, that we're to do the work of an evangelist. And when we do that as a way of life, what we see is a new dynamic where the Holy Spirit is stirring our hearts and working through us and filling us, and that's essential to being an effective parent, to be a spirit-filled parent. So while God uses, while God gives um, every church varieties of gifts and varieties of ministries, as 1 Corinthians 12 underscores, there are some shared responsibilities every believer has, and one such responsibility is to be able to teach basic truth. So if you look here from the book of Hebrews, beginning in verse 11, concerning him, the him here in the context is Melchizedek. Concerning this guy Melchizedek, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain, since you've become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, 
You have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature who, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. So while it is true there is a gift of teaching in the New Testament, and you can't control what spiritual gift God gave you, there's a gift of pastor teacher in the New Testament. There are some other gifts that have teaching dimensions to them. And again, God decides, and one gift is not more important than another. If we don't have some 20 people every Sunday morning serving in the backdrop in this room, the service doesn't go off. And many of those people have the gift of serving critical to what they're doing and to the work of the church and for us to benefit. But with the 20 gifts that are listed in the New Testament, 16 are what we would call non-sign gifts. The sign gifts are tongues, interpretation of tongues, healing, and miracles. The 16 non-sign gifts, it's interesting, with all of them, there's a common responsibility that every Christian shares. So you don't have the gift of serving, but you're called to show service. You may not have the gift of mercy, you're called to express mercy. You may not have the gift of evangelism, you're called to do the work of an evangelist. You may not have the gift of teaching, you may not serve in the office of teaching. James says, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that you'll incur stricter judgment. That's the office he's dealing with. So some, like a woman might have the gift of pastor teacher, not to serve in the office of a pastor, but to minister to other women and children as a woman is not to teach or exercise authority over a man. But with that said, there's also the office, and he warns people, oh, you want to clamor and serve in the office of teacher, being a pastor? You better think twice because leaders have greater accountability. So my accountability at the judgment seat of Christ will be greater than yours. God tells me that. And that's a sobering thought when I consider it. But there is a sense in which every Christian is called to teach. And so he said, by this time you, and um, this is an advantage to the Old English in that you will discover if you're using the Old English in the 17th century, they have a singular you and a plural you. We don't do that anymore in English. But if I were to paraphrase it, by this time y'all, meaning the whole congregation of Hebrews that he's writing, ought to be teachers. Doesn't matter if you have the gift, doesn't matter if God called you to the office, it's a mark of maturity. And so as those who are called to teach the whole counsel of God, and those who in the Great Commission are called to reach every creature under heaven, we're in one sense all called to teach children as well. If you have failed miserably as a parent, and your children are grown and gone, this course is still for you as you help other children and possibly grandchildren. If you have, by God's grace, flourished, so as to have successfully raised a godly heritage, this course is for you. For there is much more that God will want to teach you as you are teaching others. And that's an important aspect of discipleship. So if you lead some young couple to Christ and um, they start asking you questions about parenthood, you want to be able to respond. And if you don't know the answer, you're committed to finding out the answer. 
While this course by no means claims to be exhaustive in terms of the biblical curriculum needed to be effective parents, I will highlight the major realms of parenting emphasized in the Bible so that we may teach and live with renewed minds. In, this, in our sessions together, we will primarily uh, aim at the following goals. First, we will discuss how to introduce a child to faith in Christ. We'll spend just two weeks on that. And by the way, next week, we'll role play. And I might, and by the way, if anybody has a young child that has not been baptized, but is oh, six or above, and you'd like to have them up front, and they don't mind listening, everybody listening to the conversation. Claudia was going to ask for a few people to help me with that. I don't know if we'll have any kids next week, but I would love to model what I do in my office when I share the gospel with a child, or when I'm sharing the gospel with my grandchildren, or a neighbor's child. Because what I do with a child, and what you should do with a child, should be different from a meet-the-pastor kind of format, that it's much more formalized, and you're dealing with people who have matured a lot more intellectually. You want to put it in their terms. Second, we will explain the need to spend time with our children, that we might teach our children how the Scriptures relate to every avenue of life. Third, we will examine God's methods for disciplining our children. Fourth, we will study the biblical mandates to protect our children's minds and hearts so as to teach them to become self-feeders in the Word of God. At some point, you want them to know how to have their own quiet time and to become a self-feeder in God's truth. Fifth, we will discuss the parents' roles in imparting life skills. We'll talk about some essentials. We won't go through all the mechanics of how to do it, but we'll talk about, hey, when your child leaves home, your daughter leaves home, your son leaves home, here's some things that you'd want them to know. And some of you are in the grandparenting stage, and you can contribute to uh, your grandchildren in that way. Six is a fellow pilgrim in parenting and in ministry to children. I hope to answer as many of your questions as possible. So, leading your children to Christ. That's where we'll start there. Or again, by application, your grandchildren or childhood vacation Bible school or in the Awana ministry or in kids' choirs or in whatever avenue and opportunities God gives you. And embracing our responsibility to obey the great commission of Jesus, which includes leading our children or our grandchildren or someone else's children to faith in Christ. We can be both excited and frightened. Some parents or adults think, what if I say the wrong thing? Or what if she asks a question that I don't know the answer to? Or how do I know if the child is sincere and they really understand? As we think about leading a child to faith in our Savior, we want to examine some critical perspectives we must have, as well as the actual presentation of the gospel in a child's language. So let's talk first, we'll talk about tonight critical perspectives in introducing a child to Christ, and then in our next session together, we'll talk about how you take the plan of salvation and communicate it on a child's level, all right? So what are some critical perspectives? Point A there, introducing a child to Christ happens over a period of time. Typically, it happens over a period of time. Effectively evangelizing your child needs to be understood as a process and not simply as an event. And that's important because if you see it as simply an event, then you may end up like pressuring your child to make a decision 
when we need to recognize what Jesus expressed. Jesus expressed the process in John 6, 44, when he said, no one comes to the Father unless the Father who sent me draws him. So there's always usually a backstory behind someone's life when you find out how they came to Christ. Sometimes there's a time of great blessing. The blessings of God, Romans 2 says, can lead us to repentance. For other people, the bottom falls out, and they're in a great crisis. And I would say a week doesn't go by anymore where someone doesn't walk through the door and fill out a visitor's card. Why do you come to Community Bible Church? Our marriage is on the verge of a breakup, the verge of a divorce. The American family is just falling apart. And so some people, that's why they come. Uh, there, there's a brokenness there. And so there's always a backstory. And there's a backstory, too, to the process that God uses to bring your little one into his kingdom. When introducing your child to Christ, while a conversation happens in a moment's time, and by that I mean like a presentation, a formal presentation of the gospel, the point of leading up to that time must be understood as a process rather than a one-time event. When a parent understands this, the child being witnessed to will not perceive pressure to make a decision on the spot unless they are ready to. So for instance, maybe one avenue of the process is uh, when your child does what's wrong, you identify it for what God says about it. You know, what, what you just did is, is what God calls sin. And in his word, he says this. And again, unless a child is convinced that they're a sinner, I had a little eight-year-old girl come to my office one day, and this is over a year ago now, and she said, well, I said, do you think uh, you're a sinner? And I expected a yes, and she said, no, I don't think I'm a sinner. <laughs> Well, the problem there was definition. You know, she hadn't done anything, you know, dramatically evil in her mind, so she wasn't a sinner. But it said a lot that she didn't understand like a basic principle. And part of that comes from the parent's instruction, but also it's a work of the Holy Spirit. If your child doesn't really see themselves as guilty and as a sinner they're not going to make a legitimate decision for Christ. Repentance and faith in Christ is the critical event, but not necessarily an isolated event, especially when they are being raised in a godly home. So that's especially true, like if, if um, your children can't remember a time when they didn't have parents who read them the scriptures every night and prayed with them and that's a very different kind of child to introduce to the Savior than one maybe whose parents are, you know, in their 40s and they're suddenly converted and they have a 10, a 12, and an 8-year-old and they've had zero biblical instruction. And more and more, that's what's happening um, in our day because more and more people don't... We had a man in our Wednesday night service came to one of the financial... Uh, seminars. I said, why did you come? Well, I saw the thing on the finances, so I came. I said, oh, did you grow up in the church? He's 23 years old. He said, Pastor, this is the first time I've ever been in a church in my life. I said, come on. I said, you've been to a funeral or a wedding? He said, I've been to funerals and funeral homes. I've been to weddings on the beach. As far as I know, I've never stepped inside of a church before tonight. 
So like when I meet with like young Marines and guys in their 18, 19, 20 years old, and, and I'll ask them, hey, well, did Adam eat the fruit? You know, and some of them say, I don't know. And they're not joking you. They don't know. There's just like total biblical illiteracy. So working with a child whose parents are new to the faith and they're a little bit older versus a parent who's been praying for the children in the womb to be converted is very different. We'll talk about those distinctions and the different kinds of approaches next week. Okay, be there on your outline. A second critical perspective is be sensitive to the attitude and level of spiritual awareness in your child. Some children are completely unaware of biblical truth because the parents started late in the process. Yet some children, you may sense that the child has a desire and a willingness to learn. Now, let me just say parenthetically, sometimes it's not that the parents are always starting late, but they're being neglectful. And so I recently met with a young man, and I said, now, do you know Romans 6.23? And he said, no, and I, I rattled off about, and I'd said to his dad, well, let's see, that's third grade in Awana. Do you know Ephesians 2, 8, and 9? No, I don't know that. That's fifth grade in Awana. I said, I guess you don't take him to Awana. He said, no. I said, well, look, I'm not saying you have to take your child to Awana, but I can tell you right now, your child's like really behind. There's some basic verses that he doesn't have in his heart yet. And if faith comes from hearing and hearing by the Word of God, if the Scripture is the instrument to bring about conversion, and, and, and I get it, they say, I'm, I travel a lot during the week, and when we're home with our families, great, I get that, but you've got to have a plan in which to feed your children the Word of God, because it's going to be the Scripture that is the instrument that the Spirit is going to use to bring about conversion. No one has ever come to faith apart from the Word of God at any time in human history. Even before the Bible was written, still then it was direct revelation from God. Faith comes from hearing and hearing by God's Word. Still other children have more knowledge of God in the Bible and even the gospel, but they are closed-minded due to the atmosphere in the home. Dad's mean. Mom's a nag 24-7. We're going to have a Bible lesson. You know, and there's just not a lot of receptivity there. And then when you have, and again, it often comes with the dads, I hate to say it, but a dad who has unbalanced discipline, he, he ends up shutting that child's heart down before it can really be cultivated. Effectively introducing your child to Jesus Christ recognizes and takes into account that different children are at different stages. And, and, and let me just say parenthetically here, sometimes that has, you can be like doing the super job spiritually, and one child, for whatever reason, grasps the gospel at six years old, and the eight-year-old is still trying to struggle to put some concepts together. And sometimes that's reflective of other developmental issues. Why do some kids read at four and other children read at eight? Sooner or later, they all get it. But sometimes developmentally, there are different places. And that can be true, too, sometimes in the spiritual realm. And it doesn't mean that the eight-year-old who comes to faith later is going to be way behind. 
that person might outstrip all the other kids. Uh, one part is learning to co-labor with God in order to influence each child towards understanding and responding towards the gospel. So it's an, it's an individual approach. You're, you're working with all the kids, but each child obviously has to make a decision. Effective evangelism involves finding out where your child is at in their journey in coming to Christ and to build the bridge to bring them to Him. So you're asking questions, well, what part of the gospel, and we'll get into the mechanics of this, do they, not, do they understand really the concept of sin yet? Or maybe they understand sin, but they don't grasp the concept of substitution. Or maybe they understand that Jesus died for them, but they have not yet connected the dots in terms of what genuine faith looks like and how do I get the benefits of Christ's death to count for me. Again, to effectively evangelize your child, you must understand that conversion involves both a process and an event. While the Lord can make repentance and faith in Christ what appears to be an instantaneous event, we must not forget the process that leads up to the moment of salvation. As a parent, you should be looking for your child to ask you questions about the Lord and to relate God's truth to those teachable moments of life. And that's what you're praying for as a dad, as a mom. Um, it assumes you're spending time. I would never go anywhere in the car unless I had a child with me. I mean, why should I run an errand without having a child with me? That's time alone with that child. And I would have like a date with my daughter and appointments with my son, and we'd have them on a regular basis where we had some one-on-one -on -one focus time. And it's in that time very often you get to hear the child's heart and what's going on in their life. And you may sense, and we do the same thing with our grandchildren now, you may sense that suddenly a time arrives when it appears your child is ready to cross the line into God's kingdom. And that's what you're looking for, that's what you're praying for, and you perceive, ah, maybe we're at that point. As you pray in faith, you should be expecting for God to give you such a moment of openness. And when it comes, you want to be ready in an unrushed way to walk your child once again through his simple plan of salvation. And you've been teaching the plan of salvation all along, but now the opportunity, you're pulling it all together and you're going to walk them through it again. One of the, the third perspective, one of the most important responsibilities you have is to pray for your child. Again, I couldn't underscore this loud enough. The starting place for introducing your child to Christ is to spend time in prayer interceding for your child. You should pray specifically, both that the Holy Spirit would prepare your child by convicting him of sin, and then in helping you to present the gospel in a way that they can understand the truth. Paul said this to the church at Coloss, devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well, that God will open up to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ, for which I have also been imprisoned, that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. So Paul's saying, Give, pray for, if you want to pray for me, Colossians, pray one for opportunities, for open doors. And that's what you're praying for your child, for that open moment that God would give you. And then when the moment comes, 
that God would give you the strength to make it clear. Now, there's a process of preparation in our own hearts. We have to be willing to study and show ourselves approved. But listen, Paul wrote books of the Bible, by the, a lot of books of the Bible by the time he requests this. I mean, he's the greatest human theologian maybe outside of Moses or certainly in the New Testament, gave us all these books. And, and yet he's praying that when the door opens that God would help him to make it clear. And that's a good model for us. Okay, we're almost done. And he, when he comes, speaking of the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world concerning, oh yeah, so ask the Holy Spirit to convince your child of the truth of the gospel and of his or her need to respond to Jesus. That's what he came to do. He will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. You cannot convict your child of sin by trying to make them feel guilty. For only the Spirit can do that while you identify wrong behavior from the Bible, showing your child where they have erred in word, thought, or deed. Nor can you convince your child that lacks the needed righteousness necessary to have a right relationship with God. Only the Spirit can. Again, we'll talk about that. What's the difference between human righteousness and the righteousness God imputes to us? Communicating on a child's level. Only the Holy Spirit can help them to see that their righteousness falls short. You cannot, convi you cannot convincing, convincing, convincingly warn your child that their sin deserves punishment or judgment, but the Holy Spirit can. So you can't show that to your child. I mean, you communicate what the Bible says, but only the Spirit of God can bring about in their heart, you know, I deserve to be punished. My sin actually deserves judgment. And until they see that, they're not going to see the meaning of someone who took that judgment for them on a cross. In Colossians 4, 3 and 4, Paul modeled our need to pray when he asked the Colossians to pray that God would give him both opportunity and clarity when sharing the gospel. Any strategy to lead your child to Christ will be fruitless apart from the work of the Holy Spirit in response to your prayer. Then one final perspective, introducing your child to Christ involves sharing the gospel clearly. When the opportunity arises, you want to present the gospel in an unrushed fashion using simple words your child can understand. Next week, we will discuss avoiding phrases that might confuse your child, such as invite Jesus into your heart. That's a big one. It's a bad one. You don't ever want to use that. We'll talk about why next week. It's not found in Scripture. Um, phrases that confuse your child, like invite Jesus in your heart, and the varied approaches that might be taken with a very young child, say, versus a 10-year-old or even a teenager. Remember, in the final analysis, your child's salvation is a matter between the Holy Spirit and your child. The Holy Spirit must be the one who convinces your child of his or her need, of his or her sin and his need for salvation. And again, you may find yourself revisiting a presentation of the gospel with your child several times as you trust and believe God for the right time when the Holy Spirit will speak to your child. Again, it just happens in times that are unplanned. I remember with my son Jameson, my We'd been praying for him, and he's in the car. My wife is driving down the highway, and it's just like, here's the moment. 
she pulled over the car and she sat there and shared the plan of salvation with the little guy and he trusted Christ. You will discover that as you are obedient to sharing Christ with children, God will release his power through you. That's why I say this is like a key component. Evangelism is a key component to effective parenting. Because you won't be a spirit-filled parent if you're disobedient in the very thing that Christ came to do and called us to share in. And you will see an inner renewal taking place in your own life. Father, we thank you that we have this chance in the days ahead to study together and to become what you want us to become as parents, as grandparents, and just in general, in caring for children the way Jesus did. Give us a heart and a love for children if it's not there. Change us, mold us, make us, shape us, and equip us, we pray in these weeks together. In Jesus' name, amen.